1: This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. One of my favorite questions to ask guests when we're not recording is if they have any future guest recommendations, such as people they know, people they work with, or people that they look up to. Pretty much every single guest I have had on has someone where they would say, you have to talk to so-and-so. A while back, I was really pleased to speak with Yujiro Seki, the Japanese documentarian who is about to release his film, Carving the Divine, about Japanese Mahayana Bushi sculpting. During the conversation, Yujiro mentioned a series he was working on as a weekly show on YouTube with a scholar of East Asian art. Yujiro mentioned this show to the scholar and voila I was introduced to Michael van Hardingsevelt. I started reading some of Michael's work and was absorbed by some uh, topics that he's a specialist in, uh, notably Fudo Myo, described by Abbot Mato Moroshi as a quote tremendously wrathful figure depicted sitting solidly with a furious glare holding in one hand the fiery sword of wisdom that cuts through delusion, and in the other the rope of discipline by which evil forces are subdued. So I have a very beginning novice interest in Buddhist art, but my interest is emerging nonetheless, and my acquaintance with Yujiro Seki brought Michael and I together for this talk. My huge thanks to Yujiro Seki for making this possible. Everybody should go check out his film, Carving the Divine. So, today's conversation is about Buddhist and Japanese artwork with research scholar Michael Van Hardingsvelt. Michael wears many hats in the art world. He was introduced to me by Yujiro Seki, the documentary filmmaker responsible for the forthcoming film, Carving the Divine about Japanese bushi sculpting. Michael and Yujiro have a fantastic project that I endorse called Carving the Divine TV, available for free on YouTube, where they discuss anything ranging from Buddhist practice to Hindu practice to art and everything in between. Definitely check out Yujiro and Michael's collaboration and also see how you can support Yujiro's film premiering soon. So, Michael Van Hardingsveldt is a contributing writer at Buddhist Door Global, where he writes a column. He works full-time at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, or LACMA, which he refers to in the episode. He did his master's in East Asian art business at Sotheby's Institute of Art, and he also works as a lecturer for the Japan Foundation. I learned an incredible amount of information from Michael in this conversation. He is a deeply inspired and energized scholar, and his passion for his content area will likely inspire you too. Michael and I have already agreed to do future episodes of Classical Ideas together, and that is an agreement I fully intend on honoring. So without further delay... Here is my conversation with Michael Van Hardingsveldt. Michael Van Hardingsveldt, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. Thank you so
0: much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: So will you spend uh, just a couple of moments and introduce yourself to the audience, like your specialties and kind of what you do on a day-to-day basis in the real world?
0: All right. So I am a full-time employee at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, where I am a junior collections management technician. Uh, My current project is working with the East Asian collections there. Uh, I work with any objects, works on paper, Um, arms and armor, what have you. Anything that they sort of put my way, I can handle, I can work with. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, My current project there is working with uh, works on paper, um, ukiyo-e specifically. So I am working with a lot of Hokusai, Hiroshige, Yoshitoshi. You know, you can go on and on with all these different famous artists who did woodblock prints, and I've been working with their stuff.
1: Awesome. So let's go back in time a little bit. I'm kind of okay. interested to see um, how you got into this, and I know that you were born and raised in Canada, right?
0: I was, yes, in Toronto. Um, wait until I say a boot, and then you'll be definitely be able to tell that I'm Canadian.
1: Fantastic. So uh, I spent a little bit of time in Canada myself, did a, I did a degree at the University of Saskatchewan, so it is nice to uh, chat with you tonight and kind of, you know, think nostalgically back to my Canadian days. So. How did you become interested in this field? Like when did the light go on that encouraged you to pursue Japanese studies, Asian art, and what have you?
0: Okay, so this is a twofold story. Um, there is a – there's a um, kind of an initial light, and then there is a lull, and then there is a secondary light. So I think right now uh, the first light kind of went on when I was uh, in uh, sixth grade. So 11 years old, um, I had gone to the Royal Ontario Museum with my parents, and we were checking out all the different offerings that the world had there in that institution, and I had wandered into a samurai exhibition, and I laid eyes on the ferociously beautiful armor of samurai there, and I was just absolutely enamored with what I was seeing there. Uh, Beautiful, it was lightweight, it was all of these things. And I knew next to nothing about it. But the fact that they created these practical pieces that would defend you from a sword, defend you from an arrow, and yet looked so beautiful, it really captured my attention. And I became very interested in Asian culture, Asian arts. And there was a time where I entered high school and into uh, my undergraduate as well. During those years, I, for social reasons, I decided to sort of squelch, kind of hold down the excitement I had for Asian culture. Um, I grew up at a time where anime was still a very geeky thing to enjoy. And, (laughs) And so what I ended up doing was forcing myself to enjoy other stuff, not Asian culture, not Asian art. And it wasn't until I graduated from my undergraduate program in English language and literature that I decided to give teaching English a shot. Um, I moved over to South Korea, I was an English teacher at an elementary school there, and I decided to make the move from South Korea um, to Japan just on a tourist trip at first. And I spent 45 days in Japan. And as I was backpacking around there, I slept under train bridges. I slept on park benches. I did whatever I could to make the trip as affordable as possible. And I ended up loving it there. I fell in love with the art again. I fell in love with the culture again. And all of these emotions that sort of held down came out in a very, very aggressive way. And I decided that, oh, you know what? I'm going to really force myself to learn about the arts and culture that I'm involved in right now. And I would say there's no looking back. Um, I wish I'd gotten, uh, involved with it a little bit sooner, but given what I am doing now and giving where my career is and career giving all the projects that I'm involved with, I couldn't be happier and everything happens for a reason. And I'm just glad that I am where I am now just because of the experiences I've
1: had. You know, going abroad and going to different countries around the world, there is no describing it in words, the amount of impact that that can have on a person, like over time as well. Like I'm sure that even though you're not living in Japan right now, you're still learning things from those initial 45 days, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. So, like, I, whenever I was a new teacher, like, I went and lived in Mexico, and I taught in Mexico, and then I taught in England, and then I lived in Canada for a while, and in Hawaii okay. for a while. And these experiences of going to places are profoundly impactful. Like, I'm still learning things about my time in Mexico from 2007 and 2008, and I learn yeah. new things about it as moments click in my mind. So, I mean, that's just an unbelievable thing that can do to your life over such a longitudinal period of time. So, oh, absolutely. yeah and like so it seems to me like you've gotten a lot from Asia yourself yeah, yeah. your time exactly. in Korea your time in Japan it seems like it's given something to you
0: well I was for I was in uh, South Korea for five years from 2011 to 2015 and it wasn't just Japan that I' had spent time in I also went to Mongolia I went to China I went to Philippines Taiwan um, Cambodia Vietnam all of these different countries and everywhere that I went I was learning something new and I still learned something new just by looking at the photos. I know a lot of people, they'll take photos of a place they visit and then they'll never look at it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm the kind of person that I will, every once in a while, pull out that uh, that folder of photos or I'll open them up and I'll just scroll through them and given the education that I've had now I'm able to look at those photos and be like, oh, that was this and that. The historical significance of this is this and that. And I'm allowed to – I've allowed myself to really learn and educate myself just by looking at these photos and then investigating online. And it's an ongoing education and I don't think it's ever going to stop. And I'm really thankful that it's never going to
1: stop. So I'm really jealous of you because you've gotten to have this sort of like Western upbringing and then an immersion in the East and then come back to the West. And now you seems like it have like this uh, inspiration going from both sides in your day to day life. And this is reminding me of a conversation, an episode I did where I had a guest named Robert Kennedy, who is a Zen Roshi and a Jesuit priest. So okay. he was sent to Japan when he was a young Jesuit priest, and he wound up studying Zen, and he, now he does both. And he spoke passionately to me about what Asia can offer the West. So for you, as a Westerner who grew up intrigued by Eastern art and have since immersed yourself in the world of Asian art like day in and day out in your day-to-day life, what does Asian art offer to Westerners that we might be missing
0: well, I think first and foremost, insight—the um, art that it's being developed. Uh, I'm gonna sp- I'm gonna speak specifically from Japan now um, because that's where most of my studies have been in Japanese art. But when you look at Japanese art, there is an insight into how their own brains work. It's how they approach life. It's how they approach pretty much anything. There is this sense of methodology, a sense of intent, a sense of technique. they are really coming into the artistic conversation with an aesthetic that is very planned out. Um, For example, if you look at Zen paintings, uh, they spend thousands upon thousands of times just rehearsing the movements that they will do to create a shape. But they only have one chance to execute that shape with actual ink on the brush. And that is, I feel like, a a very simple but a very profound outlook on how the Japanese create their art. It's very, very impactful, and it's very, very intentional.
1: So what is, like, um, why does Asian art matter for, like, the whole world, like, not just Asia? So if you have, like, an ordinary Western person living in the U.S., like, in California or in Missouri or wherever, like, why does Asian art matter for everywhere? Like, what can it do for us?
0: Oh man, that that's a, that's a difficult question, but I feel like it gives us a lot of context um, as to things that have happened there, uh, both pre-war and uh, post-war. Uh, it shows how things have changed, um, because you see a lot of different perceptions and a lot of different perspectives being offered in art in pre-war Japan. And then in post-war Japan, you see a shift in how the art—the art that's being created out of there—and it shows that they are not so much looking at the world as a—they're not looking so much at the world as a extension beyond Japan, but they're—they're they're instead they're looking at the world as something Japan wants to be a part of, if that makes sense.
1: Mm, that's so interesting.
0: The um, export of things like anime and manga and, uh, to a lesser degree, some of the finer arts that you see as well. But anime and manga are just massive exports. Uh, and the fact that people in United States and in Latin America and in Europe, they are all uh, taking these art forms and reading themselves into them, I think, is a very... A powerful movement towards solidarity with people on a completely different side of the world.
1: So you spend your day-to-day life in art museums, right? Like you're it's, in a museum every day. Absolutely. So as a curator in a museum and as somebody who like works in the museum all the time, what are you noticing about Western tastes for viewing Asian art? Like what do you see like the Americans doing when they are observing Asian art like are you seeing any trends are they appreciative of it do they understand it
0: uh so I would say the first and foremost um comment that I hear from everybody is it looks contemporary it looks modern and to me that it just speaks it speaks to me in that people are finding modern minimalism and they're finding Um, obscure references in the art that they see today. And they make the connection between, you know, ancient art, 16th century, 17th century art forms out of Japan, and they are reading it now. And it, it, while the art markets show a movement towards contemporary art, art that is relative art that doesn't really have a meaning unless it is stated by the artist himself or herself, um, You're actually seeing people take these values and you realize, oh, hey, there is still a market for ancient art or medieval art because it it attracts the audience that you see nowadays with contemporary themes or contemporary feelings. There is a very emotional side to Japanese medieval art um, that people still they, they still react to it now. And I feel like that's something that shows the enduring quality of Japanese art. Um, oh, just because they're able you're, – you're, it's painted by a 16th or 17th century artist. And yet you have people nowadays that are feeling the exact same emotions that they were 100, 300, 200, 300 years ago.
1: I love that. It makes me, it reminds me of whenever I'm teaching the Epic of Gilgamesh in my 10th grade English classes and we're studying this misery and this quest for immortality and the ways that human beings now can still think about things the way that humans did thousands of years ago and how it really connects the human condition across culture, across time, and how it can just make us feel a little bit of connection to people across all times. I love it.
0: that it's very much something that Mark Twain would have referred to—that the uh, greatest threat to narrow-mindedness is travel—and um, I would add to that the idea of art as well. Art and travel are massive threats to narrow-mindedness because they allow us to—they allow us to connect with people that we otherwise would not be able to.
1: So, now that we've kind of like established what the work offers us, and I want you to like go on a little thought experiment with me for a second. So, you are such a, you seem like you're a really excellent ambassador for uh, intercultural dialogue and travel and uh, speaking to uh, human beings across time and across space. So, I have a religious studies class that I teach in the high school that I work at. And every year I have between like 20 and 30 guest speakers in my religious studies classes. So I want you to imagine that I invited you said, hey, Michael, will you come in and talk to my students, my seniors, about Japanese art? So if you were to give a presentation to high school seniors or grade 12s, as they were known in Canada, in a religious studies class, um, what would you choose to talk about? to the 18-year-old students like um, who are interested in these types of things?
0: So I, That's a really good question. Um, a lot of my selections come very organically because you look at the group of people you're talking to, you look at your audience, and you gauge them to see what interests them. Um, you mentioned just kind of like a bunch of different topics, and you see which one their ears perk up at. And you kind of stick with that, which I'm sure you can relate to as a teacher. (laughs) Yes. So I would probably say um, the topic that I've seen most ears perk up at first would be um, the wisdom kings, um, the wrathful deities of Buddhism. Uh, You're looking at celestial beings. You're looking at uh, basically deities that serve and protect the Buddha and the Bodhisattvas, but also are threats against evil. And they do so with these ferocious visages. They carry these lethal weapons of war. And I think that is something that a lot of 18-year-olds would be like, whoa, I didn't know anything existed like this in Buddhism. I thought Buddhism was a really peaceful religion. I thought it was a more about the the, the improvement of self, rather than talking about these wrathful, you know, war-born deities. But you cannot have a discussion about esoteric Buddhism, especially, without talking about these deities, because they serve as both the grace of the Buddha in not letting a protect, practitioner walk away, um, and they also show the, um sort of the protective side of the Buddha in that no evil will come and befall anybody who is a Buddhist practitioner because these deities will protect them from it.
1: So let's dive into a couple of those really quick. So I'm prepping okay. for an interview with a Zen abbot in Wisconsin who has a book coming out. And I'm reading his book, and he has some discussions of Neo and Fudo Mio'o and uh, I think it's Marashitan. Um, yeah. So, are these uh, some of the like some of the benevolent deities and uh, wisdom kings that you're mentioning? Yes,
0: absolutely. So I can go through them. Uh, I have a tendency to rant and rave when it comes to uh, bodhi- to um, wisdom kings and wrathful deities specifically. I mean, it's the entire topic that I will be working on for my dissertation at my PhD program. Um, so. If I tend to ramble, you know, just kind of cut me short and be like, all right, Michael, that's all the
1: time we have. We have to sure. cut the episode off here. So let's talk about the Neo.
0: Okay, so the Neo are a pair of benevolent kings. Um, two benevolent kings is the literal translation of them. And normally when you walk into the to, to the entranceway of a Buddhist temple, as you're walking to the entrance, you will see to the left and to the right, you will see two figures. Um, these are figures that are in two very dynamic, um, wrathful poses. They'll have sometimes the arms above their head or they'll have the arms at the sides in a very aggressive pose. Um, I really wish I could show you a picture of that maybe sometime.
1: I actually have one right here.
0: You have one right there? So Can you see that? Oh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, oh, So they're amazing. Um, so they would have these very aggressive looks on their faces, they're very, their musculature especially during the Kamakura period, would be very well defined. They'd have these muscles that, like, muscles have muscles almost. Yeah. And they, one of them has a mouth open, and one of them has a mouth closed.
1: Yep, I so, see that. I'm looking at the picture of it right now, right as you're describing it to me.
0: And so the one on the right-hand side of the entrance, his name is Agyo. And uh, he has a mouth that is open that... It's kind of a reference to the first letter of the Sanskrit alphabet, which is A, and that represents the beginning, the start of all things. And he is the sort of polar opposite of Ungyo. Ungyo, who stands on the left-hand side of the entrance, Ungyo has his mouth closed, and that um, represents the Sanskrit um, which is the last letter of the Sanskrit alphabet. And ah and um together make the sort of stereotypical um sound that you hear in a lot of Buddhist chants. And they represent the protection of that sacred space of the temple from the beginning to the end of time, um, from the heavens to the hells. Everything in between is protected by these two um, niyo.
1: Excellent. So who is Fudo so, Fudo Mio?
0: So um, Fudo-myo, those are two very elongated, it's it's um, two very elongated o's. myo um, sometimes you'll hear people say myo as well. Um, so Fudo-myo is a wisdom king, um, the chief of the wisdom kings. He belongs to a grouping called the Godai-myo, um, who are... Fudo, Gozanze, Dai toku, uh, Kongo Yasha, and the last one is... Gundari. Gundari. Gundari, exactly. And that grouping of five, they emanate from the five wisdom Buddhas, the Buddhas that have existed um, from the beginning of time and are all emanations immediately from Vairochana, or, as he knows in Japanese, Dai Nichi Nyorai. And Fudo Myo um, began as sort of a subservient wisdom king to Gozanze, But because of religious um, translations of sutras, Fudo became the central, the chief deity of the Godaimyo. And he carries in his hands, he carries a treasure sword, which is known as a Hokken, and he carries a Kenjaku, uh, which is a lasso. Um, with the lasso, he will bind up any threats of evil to the Buddha and to Buddhist practitioners. Or if it's a Buddhist practitioner that is wandering away from the fold, so to speak, Fudo will reach out, wrap his lasso around him and pull this practitioner back and then use the sword to threaten them. And in some cases even cut through the brain. Um, So this sword actually cuts through ideas. So there are something known as the three poisons of the mind, which is ignorance, greed, and anger. And so this sword will idealistically cut through those three poisons and banish them from the practitioner's mind.
1: I love it. Is there like—what do ordinary Buddhists think about this imagery? I mean, is it like a literal deity? Like How, how are these like thought of um, in everyday Buddhist practice?
0: Okay, so uh, these deities—they uh, all feature prominently, especially in esoteric Buddhism. They feature prominently in the Kongokai and uh, Kongokai and Taizokai mandalas. Um, they these are the the Kongokai is the Diamond World mandala, and the Taizokai is the Womb World, um, and they both represent different aspects of the esoteric pantheon of gods. At the center. Uh, You have Dainichi Nyorai, who is the cosmological Buddha, the beginning of all things, um, has existed outside of time, immemorial. And from Dainichi Nyorai, there emanate these bodhisattvas, celestial Buddhas, wisdom kings, and they all emanate from him. Now, during a, it's called the Abhishek uh, ritual. And that's sort of an initiation rite, especially in Shingon Buddhism and in Tadai Buddhism. What you basically blindfold a monk um, who is going through this initiation rite, and they must take a lotus petal, and they must – traditionally, it would have been a lotus petal. I don't know what they use now, but they would have taken this lotus petal, and they would have thrown it onto um, reproductions of these mandalas. And wherever the lotus petal landed, on whichever deity that was, that deity would become the tutelary deity, the personal deity of that person who was going through initiation. And when you use these mudras and when you practice meditation, especially chanting out their name, you are calling upon that deity And you're channeling them so that you can use their powers to defeat whatever you're suffering from. So they play, even though they might be something that's in her mind, there are very visual representations of them in front of you, and you are channeling a very real representation of them in your mind. You are basically becoming that deity, and you are using that deity's powers to threaten and chase away whatever you're suffering
1: from. Unbelievable. That is so cool. I just learned... At least 50 new things. Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) Oh, absolutely.
1: All right. So let's get a little more um, drawn back into some things that we can look at um, that every day, like all the listeners might be able to follow a little more closely because there's a lot of things that they'll need to do a little bit of research on in that last little bit, which is so cool. Um, I love like stimulating the curiosity of people out there. to like go and Google search all these images and find out the descriptions of everything you've just been talking about. So let's tie back into some of your work on like a day to day basis. What are some of the like favorite projects that you work on um, in your in your job, and why do you like them so much?
0: Um, so I would say I've got a lot of different projects I'm working on. Um, almost too much. You could tell people that I'm. I, you know, I could. I tell a lot of people that I'm crazy that I try to do too much with my time, but. I would say my favorite right now would be the lecture series that I'm doing at the Japan Foundation, Los Angeles, which is on deities and Japanese art. Um, I did five lectures for that. The first one was on Shinto Kami. um, And then I did a lecture on Buddhas, on Bodhisattvas, on Wisdom Kings, and on Celestial Beings. And there was such a positive response that I most likely will be continuing that lecture series not only on deities and Japanese art, but also speaking about sculpture in general. Um, The response has been so well received that I am also most likely going to be doing that same lecture series at a Buddhist temple in Little Tokyo here in Los Angeles. And I'm giving sort of condensed lectures at a couple sites around California. And I'm almost looking to do some uh, abroad as well.
1: Nice. Do you see these kind of being like the um, like the beginning of a book, potentially?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, my master's thesis I did on Fudo Mule, um, who we talked about earlier. Absolutely. And I was talking about a sculpture specifically in LACMA's collection. And this sculpture, it dates back to the late 12th century. Um, it's carved out of a solid piece of wood. Um. What makes it unique is that it still has its original hands. So after 800 years, uh, it still has the wood grain that is, you know, very fluid into the hands. So you can see that, oh, these are original pieces. This is a little bit unheard of when it comes to sculptures of that age. Uh, he most likely was a hibutsu which is a hidden Buddha, something you keep inside a case and you only open it up at certain times of the year or after only once every few years. Um, there are actually hidden Buddhas that are only revealed once every 33 years and there are even some that after their immediate carving they haven't been seen yet.
1: So is this a sculpture that you're mentioning to me in our emails where you it's kind of like making a permanent home sort of like in your office for the foreseeable future?
0: Um, I would say so. Um, I am using that. I'm using it as a sort of jumping point to learn about the Namakiri Fudo. Um, the Namakiri Fudo is a wave cutting Fudo Myo. Um, that Kukai, uh, who was the famous Shingon teacher, um, patriarch in Japan, he brought. He either brought this sculpture over from China, or he carved it himself when he landed in Japan safely after a very very Dangerous crossing across the ocean, um, and so this Namakiri Fudo was actually also worshipped as the deity who brought the divine wing wind that routed the Mongolian invasion, and there is so much history in this lineage of um, uh, portrayals of this deity. Um, You can find seated deities, you can find uh, standing portrayals of Fudo, you can find ones where he has eyes closed, one where he has eyes open, ones where both fangs stick upwards, one where both fangs point downwards, one where the fangs are asymmetrical, um, different materials, different techniques applied different painting styles, different temples where you would find them, different contexts where you would find them. So, yeah, I would say that a sculpture like this would find a permanent home not only in my office but in my brain. It has basically changed my academic future coming across this.
1: Nice. So I know that these pieces from hundreds and hundreds of years ago are really sticking with you and really teach you a lot of things. So how do these – methods from yeah. traditional artists inspire contemporary Japanese artists today?
0: Okay, so there is a there is a sculptor from the Kamakura period. He belonged to a very famous group of sculptors known as the K School. Um, his name was Unkei. Um, and Unke was a little bit unique in what he did because he would take a crystal ball or a piece of crystal, rock crystal, and place it at the core of his sculptures. And when he placed it at the core of the sculpture, it was as if he was breathing a soul, breathing life into the sculptures there. Now, there is a contemporary sculptor. um, His name is Haroshi. And he creates these sort of joined block sculptures using old skateboards. And very akin to what Unke does, You've got Haroshi taking a piece of a skateboard and placing it at the core of his sculpture to give it that soul. And so you see the sort of unification of the old technique to the new uh, material, to the new, I would say, the new mode, the new, the new aesthetic, so to speak. And you've got these two melding together, which is a very dare I say, a very Japanese thing to do because a lot of contemporary artists in Japan still use traditional methods to create what they
1: do. That's fantastic. What are some of the things that you think uh, people should read or watch? I'm kind of looking to see like if you can give some suggestions for people to who might want to know more who can dive in on their own.
0: Okay, so I have four books that I'm going to recommend. Um, the first one is by an author named Washizuka Hiromitsu, and it is called Enlightenment Embodied. And it's a catalog all on Buddhist sculpture. And this book is, I would say, it is an absolute necessity if you're going to delve deeper into sculpture. Um, It breaks techniques down, it breaks... deities down. It breaks everything into very understandable pieces, giving you little blurbs on which that you can do further research afterward. Um, Following that, I would probably look at the Princeton Dictionary of Buddhism. I actually have a copy right on my shelf. Excellent. Um, And so this this one was written by Robert Buswell and Donald Lopez, and it is a
1: mighty tome Indeed, that is gigantic.
0: So it is, let me see, it is about 600, oh, actually, sorry, a 1,000 pages of Buddhist terminology coming all the way from India through China through Korea to Japan, into Tibet, into Nepal. Every tradition of Buddhism you can think of, those terms are in there. Awesome. So that, it's a massively important resource if you're going to be studying Buddhist art. Um, if you want to get more of a overview of Japanese art, I would recommend Penelope Mason's History of Japanese Art. Um, I have a copy of that on my shelf. Um, I would also recommend Patricia Graham's Faith and Power in Japanese Buddhist Art. Um, those are also very um, noteworthy books that I've been reading.
1: Awesome. So um, there's a whole bunch of young artists that... Uh are in high schools and in community colleges and in universities across the country. So as somebody who is like working every day in a museum to curate displays of human past, what kind of advice would you give to future museum workers and curators?
0: All right. So this one is a little bit hard for me to deliver because I've had such a obscure track to get to where I am. Um, I was an English language and literature major in my undergraduate. I taught English in South Korea. Um, I had next to no experience in a museum. But I lucked out because through schmoozing and, um, you know, I would say almost luck and an incredible display of passion, I was able to get an internship at LACMA. And when I got that intern from LACMA, um, I, I, I busted my... As I worked hard, and it was because I did that, that I was able to get recommended for a full-time job there, and that's what happened. Um, The reason I say that's really hard to copy is because a lot of people shouldn't have to do unpaid internships, and I hesitate to recommend people to do unpaid internships, but... If you can make it happen that you do a unpaid internship at a museum in a way and in a fashion that you can show your work ethic and that you can show your desire to learn and that you can show your desire to self-study and to move yourself forward through um, a very highly motivated projects and everything like that, I think you would have a chance to move upwards in the museum field. But it's a very difficult field to break into because it's also very much who you know. Um, You need to have that passion, you need to have that heart and you need to have that self-motivation to really keep yourself going in day after day even though you're not getting paid and even though you might see your other people getting out faster just because they know somebody. Um, Don't let that discourage you from getting into the museum world because it is a very, very rewarding career. And I can't tell you how excited I am every day to go to work, to handle these pieces of art, to handle these beautiful pieces of history. And just, it's a master class. It's a master level course that I am taking just because of my job. And my recommendation would be show the passion, show the desire to learn, and somebody hopefully will recognize that in you and give you a chance to prove yourself.
1: So, what do you want to do in the uh, in the field in the future? What's your future look like in so your mind? So, as I
0: saw, well, I have, I alluded a little bit um, in the it, earlier that I had recently been accepted into a PhD program. Um, I will be doing a second master's degree. My first one was in Asian East Asian art business. Um, I will be doing a second master's degree in East Asian art history. And I will be doing a PhD in East Asian art history as well. My master's thesis will be looking at different depictions of Namakiri Fudo, who I mentioned earlier. And then my PhD dissertation I've already selected. I'm already researching for it. I'll be looking at the sociological and um, religious and anthropological reasons that the grouping of wrathful deities, the, the Godai Myo, they did not persist in Japan, but they did persist in... J- they, sorry, they did not persist in Korea, but they did persist in Japan. And I want to find why that happened the way it did. Why Korea sort of saw them fade away, but why in Japan they became basically independently worshipped deities. And so I want to do that. I would like to move to Japan for a couple of years so I can do a lot of on-field research uh, look at these sculptures in person, you know, maybe, you know, don't tell anybody, but maybe even touch one of them. That would be fantastic. <laughs> um, I would I would love to create a intercultural arts program between Northern Europe and East Asia. Um, because I'm of Northern European descent, um, it kind of bothers me that there is very little Asian representation art-wise in Scandinavia. Um, and I also want to see... Um, Scandinavian representation in East Asia. And so, if I can at least start the conversation between those two areas, I think it would be really exciting to do something like that.
1: Michael Van Hardingsfeld, this has been an absolute pleasure having you on Classical Ideas. Where can people find you if they want to know more or if they have any follow up questions?
0: All right. So, um, I've I really hope that people will post uh, or look at the comments on this. Um, I will definitely link people to the um, Carving the Divine TV channel, where Yujiro Seki Seke and I have been working on a series of short videos talking about different Buddhist ideas, um, looking at things like sutras and mudras, and how it compares to Hinduism and everything like that. So you can find us on YouTube at Carving the TV or Carving the Divine TV. Um, You can also find – at some point, the Japan Foundation will be putting the videos of my lectures up on YouTube as well. And so I will post that as soon as they become available to the public. Um, I will be writing a monthly column for BuddhistDoor.net. And I will be writing, the the column will be about um, Buddhist iconography as it transmitted from India all the way to Japan. So as soon as my debut article comes out, I can direct people to that. And you can find me just on Facebook. Um, I'll pl- post my link there. And you can also email me at michaelv at lacma.org or at michaelvanhardingsvelt at gmail.com.
1: Awesome. We definitely have to give a shout out and props to our mutual friend, Yujiro Seki from Carving the Divine right now. So hello, Yujiro.
0: Hi, Yujiro. How are you, sir?
1: All right. Michael Van Hardingsfelt. thank you so much, sir. And I look forward to speaking to you again in the future for another episode. That
0: would be wonderful. Take care.
1: Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Streibig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leaving a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.